Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Here to Learn. I'm Matt Edwards, and I'm a public high school teacher here in Raleigh, North Carolina. These are my conversations with people with interesting perspectives on topics in education today. In this episode, I sat down with Josh Edwards, a science teacher in Wake County. Uh, he's taught here and as well as he's taught in Brazil, and he's got some interesting perspectives on inclusive classrooms, making your classrooms safe, as well as social and emotional education. I enjoy sitting down with him and listening to his ideas and his passion for students and it was just really neat to get to uh, interact with a teacher that seems to be as in tune with their students yet challenging himself to go deeper and and more involved with his relationships to help them learn and have as great an experience as possible in classrooms so I hope you enjoy it. give you uh, a little bit of an opportunity to talk a little bit about who you are. So you went to Enloe High School, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina, and then you went where to college? Um, I graduated from Enloe in 2006 and started at NC State the next fall. Um, graduated from NC State in 2010, and I was lucky enough to be one of those people who get into college already intending to be a teacher. Um it was, it was kind of a, a weird story that took me to NC State. That was definitely my last choice of college, um, not really for any reason of substance, just because I had never imagined myself going to NC State. I was born in Raleigh, raised in the Raleigh area, went to you know elementary, middle school, and high school in the Raleigh area. And so for me, the idea of going to school right down the street w- w- didn't sound great. Um, and so I actually had intended to transfer schools after a year Um, and, uh, as soon as I got, I remember at orientation, as soon as I walked into NC state, I immediately knew it was the place I needed to be. Mm -hmm. Like I immediately understood, Oh, this is the right place for me. But that was because I was lucky enough. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have the right people around me that I got into an education program right away. Okay. Um, and that program was so, um, I, I guess the right, I've, I've said the word responsive a lot today, but that, I mean, that is exactly what they were. They were so responsive to me and who I was so quickly. Um, and I was actually at the, at orientation, I remember working with, I was actually working with a professor who soon retired and she was the, um, oldest and most, um, she had been in that in that department the longest of anybody that was working there, and so it was kind of funny to get to start with her, and then to very quickly start working with um, younger and newer professors, and and kind of how all of those different um, perspectives worked together really well because they had a really strong focus on mentoring and things like that in that department, and it and really rubbed off on me the right way. And so by the end of my college experience, I had actually already finished a semester worth of uh, master's classes so it's funny to have gone from being a, a, a high school student that can't get myself together enough to to even like turn in turn in the most basic of, of assignments and 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 just pass the classes to get out uh to suddenly um being a student that took extra classes every semester and you know had most you know mostly a's most semesters and and i was just so into learning i was such a nerd but i, I was so into it because for the first time i was just like in i was in this environment where i had professors that i felt were investing in me and i was in a school environment that i was in control of and i could pick courses and i could put them together and i i 
I was very fortunate that the right pieces fell into place. Um, I give a lot of credit to my high school that I graduated from for giving me those tools even before I knew it. Um, I was surrounded by people as I was in high school that were really, really good at school and really, really successful. And I was surrounded by teachers that were familiar with teaching students who were really, really good at school and really ready to be challenged. And so I was lucky enough to have been in those courses, whether or not I succeeded in those classes myself, whether I put my own efforts enough to be successful, I learned the tools that I needed that when I went to an environment where I was just let let loose, instead of really struggling like some of my peers did, I was able to be really successful. And so that was a really important part in making me the teacher I am today because there's so much that I learned in those four years in the the science education program at mm-hmm. NC State. And I to this day, I can't say enough really, really positive things about that program. I, mean, I remember going to a, my very first job interview was with Durham County Schools, Durham Public School, I think is what they actually go by. And, um, and the guy, the gentleman who was there kind of doing the pre-interview said, how, um, why should I, uh, how should I, um, why should I hire you over anybody else? And I said, because I have the absolute best um, science education preparation, teacher preparation of anybody in this job fair because I was so confident in the program I was coming out of. And I, I feel so lucky to have had those people that invested in me. Um, my point of saying all that is because they invested in me, I was interested in a master's program. So what that turned into was basically for the first four years of my teaching, I was in grad school to get a master's. Mm -hmm. And that also encouraged it. Well, none of my professors actually encouraged me to go outside of science education. They were all trying to get me to stay in science ed and do a program with them. But, um, they were so encouraging of me in general that I was willing to kind of branch out and I actually went and did a master's in another branch of education. Um, it was a complicated name, but basically it was, um, it was a program on um, kind of what will teaching and learning look like in the future of schools. Right. Um, the name of the program is the um, New Literacies and Global Learning um, Master's Program at NC State, and it's really great. Um, and I, I really appreciated what it taught me, but it basically let me kind of go off in a lot of different directions. And that kind of provided a... Professional development that um, that supported me through my first four years of teaching. Right. So, so through those first years of being a new teacher, of being a beginning teacher, of um, I also had this really strong like academic push behind me um, to kind of stay connected to research, to keep trying new things, to be really inventive, and that also um, was really important in the relationships that I built with teachers at the school that I was teaching at. Mm -hmm. Right. So like other new younger teachers, as well as more experienced teachers, I happened to find myself again in a really affirming environment that, um, supported me kind of going off and doing a lot of different things. So now I've gone from high school where I didn't know how to use the resources that I had around me, but they still had their claws in me to college where all the resources were available, but I wouldn't have gotten anything out of it. I hadn't taken advantage of them to college. I'm sorry to, um, to the professional environment where I'm being supported from all sides and being really affirmed to just go out and try something different. And, and, and that was a really, um, that was a really important part of me kind of becoming the teacher I am today because despite, um, all that support, I realized that I needed to do something different. And that's when I decided to start looking at international schools. Okay. So you were teaching locally 
in in Wake County. Yeah. And uh, and while you're working on that master's program, and then you said you felt the change, the call to change, or needed to try something different because you literally had been in the Raleigh area yeah. your entire life. So, what did you decide to do? Well, back in college, I had I had gotten connected with a professor who um, had created a professional development program for North Carolina teachers to travel to Brazil and start uh, and kind of work with teachers there in some of their like incredible ecosystems. Um, and that professor just kind of got connected with me enough that she allowed me to come and kind of treat it as a study abroad program rather than professional development because I was an undergrad at the time. I ended up traveling with her two times. So so Brazil got its claws in me that way. Um, and uh, because of that professor's program, I got interested in Brazil. And so now we're talking five or six years later, um, I've been teaching for a few years. The World Cup's going to be in Brazil, and so I'm um, so I'm making plans to go there. And I come came back from the World Cup in the summer of 2014 and decided I wanted to um, try to move there. Um, and and I will say, if I hadn't had like, despite all of that really um, great affirmation in those first couple of years, I was in a school where I was constantly running into problems with the administration mm. and um and that was really difficult to to deal with as a young teacher because i had had so much affirmation that i didn't know how to take the criticism i didn't know how right. to take the limitations um and so it, it was difficult for me but um my way out of that situation was to do something international it ended up being the best possible thing i could do um and i ended up teaching at an international school um in sao paulo brazil for three years um i'm amazed that they were willing to invest in me and to to take me on because it was really the dream job um at the dream city dream location you know right time right place everything um and it was a lot of the things that had been very difficult for me in working with the administration that made me such a good fit for that job in Brazil. So if I hadn't had a whole bunch of affirmation and some struggles in those first couple of years, I wouldn't have been the right candidate for the job to get me to Brazil. So I um, went to Brazil and I, I really enjoyed it, had a really great experience there. Um and just didn't feel like my family would put up with me being away for any more than a couple of years. Uh, so that's, um, so that's why three years later, um, a year ago now, um, I came back to the U S and so at the beginning of the 2018, 2019 school year was my first year back in Wake County schools. Um, and so I started teaching again at Inlow high school where I had been a student there, um, and really appreciated that environment. Um, but because now for the first time, you know, it's funny, we talk about the the needs of our students going beyond the classroom. I, as a teacher for the first time was finding myself having, um, needs beyond the classroom. I, you know, I was married now and we were trying to choose a home and we were trying to build that home together. And, and um, and it just got difficult to be commuting, commuting, um, into downtown when we were living, um, way up in the suburbs. And so, um, I just decided that no matter how, um, 
no matter how much I appreciated the opportunities that Inlow gave me, I needed to go to a different school. And so um, that's when uh, an opportunity came up closer to home and I took that and they took a risk uh, and, it, and it feels like it's um, a really good fit. But then again, I've only been there for, you know, at this point, a couple of months. So I'm, I feel like I'm still in a sense of transition, but it's all of these past experiences that have kind of set me up to be able to, to kind of navigate through some of those. All right. What was it like for you in high school, um, identifying as a gay male, um, you know, and, and what that looked like for you from your perspective, learning then in your life? That's hard for me to, that's, I I don't know. I, um, I think the, well, first of all, the, there, there's a couple of sides of this. The, the first thing is, like when I think about myself as a high school student, now as a teacher, I think back as, of myself as just a really crappy student. And I was reminded of that recently because I went to, I started teaching, I, I taught for a short period of time at the school that I graduated from, where a lot of the teachers that taught me are still there, including one or two teachers that I had not very great relationships with um, are still teaching there. And it's funny to see them 14 years later, 14, 15 years later, 2006, do the math on that real quick, 13 years later. Um, and, um, and it's funny to see them treat me as a teacher considering what, considering like what they remember me as. And, and what was really interesting is to hear how they remember me because a lot of them did remember me and they didn't remember me quite as negatively as I remembered myself um, as a student. All right. So, so there's that part of, of thinking back as high school, but while I was in high school was when I came out, that was also when I like realized my own, um, like my own sexual orientation. That's like when I figured out a lot of stuff about myself. I think that's typical of a lot of teenagers. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what that time is. So for me, um, so for me, high school was really um, colored by the fact that I was figuring out who I was, and a part of that was that I identified uh, as gay. And um, and and I'm lucky to have been able to figure that out and to have been in an environment that I felt was secure enough to talk about that. So in that sense, I, I'm, I count myself very lucky because I think the vast majority of people around the world, people in the U.S., young people, they're either not secure enough in themselves, secure enough in their relationships with their families, their friends, or they just simply feel um, like society, the world around them, media targets them, targets people who are gay enough that they don't feel comfortable assuming that identity and, and, and um, accepting that part of themselves. So I, so for me, I'm very thankful that I went to a school that um, I felt was about as affirming as you could be um, in our local area. I mean, I'm, I know that there are there are schools in other parts of the country, other parts of the world that that do things very differently. But for me, it was um, about as an affirming affirming environment as I could find. And um, and there was a handful and I'd say a large number in comparison to many schools, um, maybe due to the size, maybe due to the size of some of the programs um, of openly gay students at the school. And so the fact that you had people who I was friends with, who I could, you know, who I identified with, who, um, you know, who I could talk through these things with somebody my age who was also dealing with those things. I think that was a, um, 
an important thing. The other thing that was a that was that really colored my experience um, in high school, or it, it was a lot less to do with school and a lot more to do with just like the time period we were in. Was you know, I, I think I'm a part of the first generation that um, that came out online. You know mm. that that mm. Um, that the internet was a really important part of my ability to figure out who I was and explore who I was and talk to people. Why would you say that? Well, what about it? Would it be, I mean, cause like I hear you say that and immediately I'm like, is it because you have more anonymity or is it because there's, it seems to be a safer space? What about that uh, timing with the internet being more accessible allowed you more of a, of, a, of an environment to be you well um i i think you mentioned anonymity i think that's a, i mean i think that's an important part of it right there you are you don't have the accountability of talking with somebody that you actually are like in a a face-to-face personal relationship with. So these are not friends. These are not, you know, family. This is not somebody you have to see tomorrow when you go to school. Um, but the, the other thing is just that it, it gave me access to, to people mm. and I could kind of experiment w- talking with people, asking questions, one, you know, and in that environment where the understood precursor to the whole conversation, the understood prerequisite of the whole conversation was we are two gay people. And so I could actually ignore that part and kind of just talk and be for a little bit. Now, I mean, I think that um, being gay is, is a thing, you know, that, that's, an, that's an important part of my personal identity. I know that there's people who identify as gay that would say that it's not a part, you know, it's not an important part of their identity. People identify as straight don't feel like that's an important part of their identity. I, I get that. All of us are different. But for me, that was, I think that was always a very salient part of who I was. Um, but I was at that time figuring that out and figuring out what that meant. And so the internet gave me a way to figure out how the other parts of who I was fit into that and to, to explore that in a way that was safe um, and accessible. Because at the time, I mean, I remember, I mean, I remember even before I actually had the aha moment where I realized what my feelings and ideas were, I remember before then, like getting online and going to like chat rooms and stuff. Now, okay, remove myself from that and put myself in, in as an adult today looking back. Yeah, I think that was really problematic because that makes young people really vulnerable. It makes people, um, it, it puts young people in situations um, that they're not really ready to handle. They don't really know how to negotiate um, the conversations, especially if you're talking with somebody or you're communicating with somebody who is older than you are, more experienced than you are, and um, and, and so that definitely set me up to, um, you know, that, that set me up to have to negotiate some things way younger than I should mm-hmm. have. And mm-hmm. I think that has a lot to do with just in general, the way we approach sexuality, like as a country, as a society, mm-hmm. as schools, we, you know, we're terrified of talking with our kids about sex and drugs and violence and, and, and so, because it's uncomfortable. And so since the American way is to just not have difficult conversations intergenerationally, especially in our schools, that meant that I was using the internet as that tool as mm-hmm. that, you know, education tool. So if we go back to the question you asked me, what was high school like? Well, it was a social location for me to explore who I was. And the thing that kind of fell by the wayside in that process was 
me investing myself in, in learning, um, right. which is interesting because I still think I, I still thought of myself as a, like a learner. Like I was interested in school. I was interested right. in things that we were learning. I grew up in a household with a mom who was a teacher and I had a brother who was a teacher and I, at that point, and, um, and like the idea of school was important to me. Like I liked school and I liked the social side of it. And I liked the academic side of it. I just wasn't interested in doing the work. So all of those pieces put together are slices in a very awkward and complex, complex like image of what um, of what high school was like for me. Well, I, I think you 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 shine light on such a neat thing is, you know, we talk about uh, you identifying as a gay male and how that may have somehow been different. But in all reality, you're talking about figuring out who you are in high school. You're talking about. Uh, finding out who you are as a learner in high school and, 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 and your school being this social, um, almost like, you know, melting pot of all these different things that you're kind of working through in your life and figuring out who you want to be and how does it, how do people react to you and, and ideas and you're kind of searching for, um, kind of the direction you want to go in your life. So uh, amazingly that makes you super normal and, um, And I think as us as teachers need to understand that it's it's this idea that there are kids that are working through things with the way that they identify or what their interests are or pressures on who they're going to be in life. I talked to a student in a previous podcast about how the second she entered high school, she was thinking about, okay, what college am I going to go to? Mm. You know, and, and that's a big set of pressures, but some kids don't come in with that. They come in with another set of pressures and it's, who am I going to be married to? Or who am I going to look like? Or who am I going to hang out with? And, and I think for, for us as educators to understand that that's what's going on while we're still trying to prepare them for a final exam or, or to prepare them for the next level in their uh, math courses or, or something, you know, I think that's an interesting thing for me to hear you talk about, um, on this side of your life. Um, how has this um, journey and understanding about um, kind of working through um, yourself as a young man and then committing to be a teacher, how has your experiences um, helped you shape and create this education environment that's in your classroom right now? I think it, I don't know. That's hard because it's something that I struggle with every day. Um, Ooh, I think that what it, I think that what it makes me more aware of is some of the things that you just talked about. The, the fact that our students are learning. I, I like to, I used to think of like, I have nieces and a nephew that are like all 10 and under and around that age. And I think of them as learning how to be people. Well, the reality is that doesn't go away for quite a while. Like I think, I think at some point I told myself like, that's what elementary school students do. That's what middle school students do. And by the time they get to us as a teacher in high school, they already know how to be an adult. And so we should treat them that way. They already know how to be a person. Well, no, they don't. I didn't. I definitely didn't. I was a shadow of myself. Um, even by the time I graduated from high school, it, it took years and years after that for me to put all the pieces together. And, and I was lucky that I was, I've said this already, that I was in an affirming environment, that I was 
confident enough and comfortable enough in myself. And I was, um, I found success in the, in enough of the things that I wanted, that I was interested in, that I wanted to be involved. And even when I felt like I wasn't doing well in school, I had enough affirmation around me that I was able to kind of stumble my way through that process pretty successfully and pretty comfortably. There are people, there are students in our classes that are barely getting by day by day, um, emotionally, psychologically, um, academically, um, socially, um, physically. I mean, there's kids that are just, I mean, I, I had, I have taught students just in the last year who were struggling with real social and emotional needs. And they, sometimes I see it, there's this kind of seeming to me on the outside, there's kind of this random moment where suddenly they're behaving in a way that doesn't really make sense. And if they have the tools available to them, if they have been, if they have had adults and people that care about them enough to kind of help them come up with a way to respond in those moments, then they have a thing that they, they have a routine that they go through. Mm -hmm. And luckily I, because I, and I think I am sensitive just enough, just enough, um, not ever as much as I should be, but just enough to know, Oh, something else, there's something else going on here. There, there's something more than what I understand because of my own background experience. When that kid starts throwing up the red flag saying, Hey, I need help. I'm able to recognize that that's a kid that needs something. And what I don't try to do is give them what they need because I have no idea, um, if I'm the right person for that, but I try to give them space to either remove themselves from a difficult situation or to let me know what they do need. Right. Um, and so when you ask like, how does this infect, I mean, how does in fact, how does this affect the relationships that I build like with students or how I run my classroom? I I try my best to create a classroom where, um, every student knows that they are safe, that they are valued and that, um, I will do whatever it takes to keep them there in the room, supporting them, trying to help them be as successful as possible. I am, I think, rarely successful in actually doing that, but I try really hard because I find myself be, I, I find myself valuing that more than anything else in the classroom. Right. All right. So like right now, what, am, what, what are the things that are that, you know, just in the last couple of months I was using in my classroom? Um, I think, um, the first thing is trying to, um, trying to actively validate individual students as individuals with individual needs, different, unique needs in the classroom so that the exact same thing is not expected of every student in the classroom, but instead the best that each individual student can do. Um, and trying to communicate that in a way that works for them. Um, I can say that I think that I have been effective at that with a large number of students. I can also say that there are some definite failures in there. I mean, there are some students that I just could not get to. Um, mm -hmm. and, that, and that hurts. I mean, that is hard as a, as a teacher who is trying and values equity in the classroom and values diversity in the classroom, values really um, looking at every different student and looking for what positive um, strengths they bring to the room and trying to harness those to, to validate them and to encourage them. All of when a student just isn't connecting and, and uh, it is really hard because I blame myself for that. I take a, I really struggle with that. Um, and 
Um, this past, you know, just in the last two months when I had transitioned to a new school, I had a, a classroom full of students that included, um, I, you know, I would say four or five students that I was told before I got into the room, look, this class um, was challenging for the teacher who was there before you, and it has been challenging for the administration, and, it's been, and every single one of these students has been difficult for other, student, other teachers in the school, and they're all in this one classroom together, and do the best you can. And I, I really took that on as a challenge because I wasn't willing to just waste this time for these students. I mean, they, they need us. They, these are students who, and I don't mean these individual students, I mean all of our students. School is so, you know, the, the, the work of education is so important. There, there's no room for doing it wrong. That's the pressure I put on myself. I can't mm. do that. I can't be successful with that every day. Um, I'm, I think I've rarely been successful with that period, but... Um, I feel that pressure, and so when I walked into this classroom, I started getting to know these students. I tried to give them room to show me who they were. So I tried to not be a teacher who filled up the entire classroom, but instead left room for them to kind of have a voice in what they needed from me. Um, and so I guess that gets to this uh, this role as teachers, as a facilitator, and uh, and, and so I try to I try to make that happen the best I can. Um, but it's also different than what a lot of students get in their other classes. So that means that students who have struggled in other classes, they are immediately defensive. Um, and so you've got to kind of offer them extra grace and extra support and extra room to kind of to try something new and to trust you enough. And, and, and their experience with other teachers has been that they can't trust you. Um, teachers are out to get them. And so schools are out to get them. And so that means that you've got to constantly be trying something different. And that's exhausting after mm-hmm. a while. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that by the end of just those two months working with that group, I was exhausted. But what I am certain of is that in those two months I worked with that group of students, I, every single day, left room for those students to and make choices about what they needed from the class that day. I left room for them to make choices about the physical space, where they would be located, who they would work with, how much support they needed from me, and the role of things like technology and extra help. And, and I, every day I, I made sure to leave room for them to make decisions about that. I think some students um, really struggle with that mm-hmm. um, autonomy. Um, and so when you try to step in, when you see them not being successful in making those choices, you try to step in, but then they resent the fact that you're now stepping in. Right. Um, and so I, I, I tried my best to negotiate those situations as best I could. Um, but I think the, when you ask, you know, after being abroad and being in different kinds of classrooms and seeing all sorts of different students with different needs and caring a lot about equity in the classroom, how does that, what does that actually do in my classroom every day? It really has a lot less to do with the content and a lot more to do with my individual interactions with the students, trying to give them room to be who they need to be in the classroom, to get what they need to get out of the classroom, um, and still set enough structure up that they can know what's expected of them, know where the boundaries are, and know how to um, abide within those. Um, I use that freedom within those boundaries as much as possible. I mean, for teachers to hear that, I mean, some of them are, some teachers are, are, are going to hear what you just said and just be just totally exhausted. But I think you're talking about setting up a structured environment with very clear expectations, but an opportunity for students to have some input, 
to have some control, but also to have freedom to make some decisions, evaluate themselves and figure something else out if that didn't work. And, and I think what that means for teachers is to really know what they want the, the, the product of their classroom to be so that they're more flexible on that process. And, um, you know, I, I give you a lot of credit for understanding that and to know your content well, to know classroom management well, but to also be comfortable enough with those two things to be patient with your students as they get ready to to receive those things. And I think that's a really important thing for teachers to hear. Over the last calendar year, I've taught in three different high schools. Mm -hmm. And um, over the course of my now finished my ninth year teaching my career, I've taught in four different high schools, plus wherever I did student teaching and stuff like that. So every single one of those environments I felt were really different Mm -hmm. in um, how kids responded to my attempts to create what I think of as a safe classroom. Um, What I have found is that um, different schools have different cultures of accountability, and that plays a really important role in how you create a classroom that helps students feel comfortable enough that they can kind of let down their walls and, and, and start learning. Um, and different, and the curriculum you're in and the background of the students, it, 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 all of that plays just a really complicated role in me trying to figure out how to make this room feel, this classroom feel safe and productive for different kids. And the truth is, I don't know that I've come up with a really good option. What I know is that I think it takes time being in a school. You know, I, I, it, I, the first school that I taught at, I was in for five years. And I think I, by the end of those five years, I was really, really good at knowing what kids in that school environment really needed. Uh, knowing, knowing the type of kids that you're teaching each day. Well, I think it, it's more than just knowing the type of kids. It's knowing their context. Okay. Right? It's like it's knowing what's different, what needs to be different about my classroom from the other classrooms that they go to. Mm-hmm. What needs to be different from my classroom, the hallway that they walked through to get to my classroom. What um, and part of that's knowing the individual kids, but um, but part of it is also knowing the school context. And because I went from a school that I was in for five years where I felt very comfortable navigating what kids needed in my room, um, and then I went to a school that I was in for three years where by the end of those three years, I felt really good at that. It was a smaller school, so it was a little easier, a little bit more exposed exactly what um, kids needed. Um but now it just in the past school year, I've been in two different schools and in neither of those places do I feel like I understood enough about the school culture to really give kids, especially kids that were struggling students that really needed extra help and extra support. Um, I really struggled to figure out what it is that they needed. Now, what I tried to do is I tried to be very careful about the way I speak to students. I tried to be very careful about the way I enforce school policies. And what I mean by, I don't mean that I just don't enforce school policies, but I mean things like um, um, the way you negotiate late work is a really big deal with um, students today. Interesting. Tell me about that. I mean, I... I don't know that I've got some answer, but you know, like the the first half of this past school year, I was in a school that um, basically had no standardized policy about late work, but would allow any teacher to do whatever they wanted with it. All right, well, my basic approach is 
there is no grading penalty for turning in something late. You just if if you get through the process, if you try, and and if and if you show that um, that effort of actually trying to work through, if this if the assignments that I've created and worked uh, provided are meaningful enough that um, they're valuable on time or late, then you should be able to work through those, and you can hand those to me, and and you'll earn your credit. Um, I didn't necessarily like what that did for the focus of struggling students because they got so focused on, but I did my work. They got so focused on that, um, that as long as you turned in a half done piece of paper, you could get enough credit and now you're passing the class. Okay. Well I didn't, so that would, I would not call that successful, but it did go a long way for giving students that are used to having no second chances and no other options in their other classes. It did at least give them something that they could do in my room. So instead to try of to focusing on the philosophy, philosophy of deadlines and things like that, which a lot of yeah. us get focused on, you use this as a chance at redemption and a chance at giving a kid an opportunity to change the path that they were on. Would you say that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. I, I, I think there's some words there that, that give me a little bit more credit. I mean, when we talk about path and redemption, suddenly I'm the savior character. I don't, I don't want to be that for, because I, I'm, I can't, I can't claim that for kids, but the, but what I do try to do, like I'm thinking of a couple of specific students that I worked with for the first half of this past school year, that they were so familiar with experiencing struggle and stress and failure in school environments that when they saw the opportunity to be successful, even with just going one step beyond coming into the room, put your head down and not doing anything, when they saw the opportunity to be just a little bit more successful, when they saw the opportunity was there, when they saw that they literally could not do anything to turn me off from trying to help them, that made a difference for those kids. Now, I will say that that got really complicated when halfway through the year I told them that I was leaving that school. And, and there were definitely some, I mean, there were definitely some students who said some things to me about, oh, you can't handle us anymore. You can't put up with us anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, well, now this isn't like, this is really challenging me and the things I believe about equity and, and, and challenging students and help providing as many possible um routes to success as I can possibly create in my classroom. However, when I got to the second school that I taught at this past year, um, th that was an environment where um, there was a school-wide policy for, I mean, we're talking about late work. Late work's not the thing, right? But but this is just an example mm -hmm. of ways you negotiate administering your classroom and, mm -hmm. and, and, and managing your classroom and policies and things like that in a way that provides opportunities for students. And uh, when I got to the second school, they had a school-wide, very clear policy on late work. And what I noticed is that um, it was a motivating force for about 50% of the students who would normally not turn in their work on time. And the other 50% of the students, it was a demotivating force. And the 50% of the students that it was a demotivating force were the ones who were your high, your most um, highest need, um, most likely to struggle students. And that was really, I mean, that was really difficult for me to see because like I knew that by the end of the course, we were going to handle whatever, you know, like I understood that like they were going to be just fine by the end of the course because of the way numbers work. And the, the students, however, didn't recognize those things. And so they had a lot of trouble. They had a lot of trouble um, getting over 
things like a late penalty, like a number of points on a late penalty and st- you know, and, and things like that. And, and so what I found myself caught up in these rules and it gets back to all of that is, is trying to talk about un- how much I think the context of the school impacts okay. getting, um, understanding what your students need in your classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was at one school for half of the year that had so many different rules from so many different teachers that these students were so relying, they were so reliant on just teachers kind of making up their own grading policies in order to, in order to get by. And then in the second half of the year, I was in a school that did have very clear, explicit policies, but they were not necessarily in line with what the students of greatest need needed. Interesting. And so you end up kind of stuck in the situation where I'm new. I'm trying to figure out how to negotiate these environments and how to support students. Regardless, I mean, I, we, we started this conversation talking about how I, identif- how I identify as a gay male and how that was an important part of me growing up. But it, that is not the only part of our students' experiences. It's not the only part of their um, identities. And so trying to create a classroom that is responsive, that is... Um, that creates visibility, um, all of those things, it gets difficult to maneuver around the technicalities of managing a classroom, which when it comes down to it, every, every policy we create, every school improvement goal we make, every question and email that I get from parents is all focused on what's the grade that my students yeah, getting. And so is. when that create, when that is such an ominous shadow in our attempt to try to be responsive to our students, it really becomes difficult to leave room for who they are in the classroom to, to create classrooms that are nurturing and are affirming of who they are and who they are learning that they want to be and who they are trying on today. Um, it, it really creates difficulties for us to be able to do that because so much of our conversation, so much of our focus comes down to a number on a piece of paper. Right. And, you know, I, and I, I feel like uh, the adults drive that so much. You know, we put that pressure on the kids and, and uh, you know, right now the, the figuring out who they are and that journey is that's almost like what's most important to them, but we almost tell them, no, you're not allowed to focus on that right now because you're you have to focus on those grades. Yep. And uh, what an interesting perspective to bring up. Um, let's move outside of your classroom a little bit. Hallways, school buildings. What are some things in your different schools that you've been at that you've really liked? Um, way that schools have served kids. Um, how, you know, what are some things? that schools you've been at have done? Well, I I think it depends on... Okay, well, I I think it depends on which groups of students you need to respond to most. Oh, okay. Um, Because I I don't think that it... um, I don't think that responding to um, every group of students in the exact same way works. Because... Um, students are individuals. And one of the things that we are seeing, um, I think it's always been true, but one of the things that we're really recognizing um, about 
young people today, and at this point, you know, a, a, a generation that is young, an, enough younger than me now. I've been in the profession just long enough that they are a full generation younger than I am, mm-hmm. and and that has been difficult to kind of navigate. But one thing I notice is that their identities and their personalities and their needs are more intersectional than I think we have recognized or given credit for in the past. So I use the word intersectional there. Let's just clarify what that means. The the idea that it's not about a student being a student of color. It's not about a student coming from an immigrant family. It's not about a student um, identifying as part of the LGBTQ community. It's it's about the fact that a student is not is never just one of those categories. Oh, a student okay. is m- multiples of those categories. Um, a student is and and beyond just those marginalized groups. Let's just think about young people. The they are. Um, learning about their own personality. So you've got kids that have different, you know, really diverse interests. You've got students who um, their motivating um, force in their life is athletics. You've got other students who really, really value learning and they want to learn as much as they can, maybe if it's just to impress the adults in their life that they Mm -hmm. feel are putting a lot of Mm -hmm. pressure on them. You've got students who are really motivated by the arts. You've got students who are really motivated by gaming, by um, these online communities and, and things and wanting to be a part of that, you know, that these are students who grew up as um, technology natives, right? Mm-hmm. So they, um, as internet natives, and so that means that the the internet, you know, for me, that was a an outlet that I could go to and kind of explore and figure out. And nobody, none of the adults knew how to do as much online as I did. Okay, well now we've learned, but those are students that, that grew up in it. Mm-hmm. And so their interest in those environments is a real motivating factor for them, but, but it intersects with their identities. It combines and it overlaps in a way that we can't separate those things out. So what that means is that recognizing kids individually, I think, is the the best thing we can possibly do in the hallways, in our classrooms, in general. Uh, we, we talk a lot in education about building relationships with students, and that's fine and all, but students are so in need of meaningful relationships today. I think that um, the casual just knowing their name as they come into your room, mm-hmm. we used to really focus on that. Like that was a big deal. That was a lot, right? Well, now that's nowhere near and like that's nowhere near enough right. because we've got to know those things and we've got to be able to connect with them on a level that um, that connects to the things that they value and the things that they're struggling through and the things that they are questioning about their own selves. Um, so I think, the, I think the first thing we can do is build relationships with our students inside, outside of the classroom that makes them feel feel seen. All right. So how do we do that then? You, you do that on an individual basis, but there are some structural things that I think schools can do. The first is um, visibility. We can make sure that the literal images around the school represent all of the different parts of the student body. Um, very often, um, you know, I work in a school that has um, a hallway full of um, pictures of um of school athletes. It's not the first school that I've, I've worked in that looked okay, but that's the only place in the school where there are photos of students posted mm-hmm. is just of athletics. And so what it sends the message to the students that if that's not who you are, then you're not as valuable to the school. Mm. And so we have to be careful about those implicit messages. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of athletic programs or the importance to those students that are involved in them. But, um, I think that uh, I think we have to be aware. All right, we've got to make sure that that's not the only image that we're sending out. That that that's not the only group of students we've got. Um, 
And so making sure that there's a diversity, not just in the kinds of activities, but also in race, ethnicity, um, gender, making sure that students are visible and that people that look like them are visible in the physical setup of the school. So are you saying that maybe hiring practices Oh, that well, should be yeah. considered. I would actually say that that's a separate. Um, I mean, it is a. It it serves the same purpose in our students, but it is a separate um, thing that we have to do because it, it's it's something. You know, teachers can control the pictures that we put up on the walls in the classroom. Right. We can't control who gets hired at the school or not. Yeah, so so right. it's beyond okay. the level of what we can okay. do. But yeah, you are right that when uh, you know I have worked in schools that. That's not true. I have worked in a school that um, teaching force represents the divert does a really good job of representing the diversity of the students there, and it makes a really meaningful difference for me as a teacher because when I'm struggling with a student, and if I think it there is um, there is an issue related to race. I have a wide variety of teacher colleagues that I can go to and seek out for support. When I have an issue with a student that is related to their gender identity, I think, or is being impacted by this, or when I'm trying to get to know a student that is outside of my own um, little comfort zone, the, the things that I feel really comfort, I can, I feel really um, aware of. When I know that our teaching body is highly diverse, I have all of those different resources to go to and to seek out for help with that student. Um, I think that every school, um, I think that there is a lot of room to do better there. Okay. But that's a. But I would say that's a separate. I mean, right. yeah, it's it's absolutely right. yes, of course, yes, it's a it's a huge issue that we need to deal with. Um, but it's a. Um, I think it's a separate issue from um, some of the lower hanging fruit that we can we can access right um, on the level of us as teachers. Okay, um, you know some of the things that I've heard people do is play music in their classrooms in between classes or even during class. Sure. Um, tip, different types of pictures. You know, you'll see. Um, I don't know at the school that I teach at, there's several history teachers have some neat pictures of historical events. Um, and you know, are, are, are these some of the things teachers should be looking at or are you more of a, uh, of a or organic put up things that reflect your personality? T- tell me more about, well, I, I mean, I think you can do a little of both, but okay. the, I think the hardest thing about that is that that's the absolute minimum we have to do. Uh. And, and, and some, for some of us, that takes a lot of work to get that far. Um, but that is the absolute minimum. That's where we needed to be five to 10 years ago mm-hmm. and we're not there. Um, so, so when I start talking about ways that we can, you know, make our students feel seen and, and understood in the, in the building. Okay. Yeah. You're putting up pictures of diverse faces and, um, things that are important to you and reflect the fact that you value identity in your classroom. Yeah, that's kind of like step one. In fact, I, I mean, I, I'd say it's step one to try to give a little bit of credit, but I know that there's a lot of people who know a lot more about this stuff than I do that would say it's step zero. Mm. That, you know, that is, the, that is the first thing you've got to do is to make sure that the, um, the building itself, your classroom, the way you speak to students is, um, recognizes who they are and recognizes their diversity and recognizes their um, values and needs. All right, but what educational theory tells us that we've got to move forward to is um, a more responsive pedagogy. So a more responsive, a culturally responsive um, 
approach to our teaching and learning. And um, culture responsive pedagogy is a thing that's been around for quite a long time. It's something that I was introduced to in college, and it's something that I've invested a lot of time and energy into, and it's something that I don't feel successful with yet. Like, I am still struggling with it. As a, a white male, regardless of whether or not I identify as gay, I struggle to... Um, make sure that my classroom, the actual way I am teaching, not just the way I talk to students, not just the things up on the walls, but the actual content and the way I am presenting that content, the way I am offering opportunities for students to engage with that content is responsive, is responsive to who they are. Like that is hard work. And, um, and there's a lot of really great writers out there that tell us ways to do that. Um, I mean the, the kind of the, the mother of, um, of uh, culturally responsive um, teaching and learning would be Gloria Ladson Billings, um, and there's there's plenty of other people, Geneva Gay. Um, uh, the the theoretical framework goes as far back as James Banks, um, and that's kind of what I'm referring to now, where I talk about you know making sure that the school itself has visible representation. That that's step one. Well, I mean that's that's what he presents as the lowest level of. Um, curriculum reform I'm trying to use the right words um, of curriculum reform um, and as and I've presented in you know some workshops that I've done with other teachers that we need to it is perfectly fine if where you come to the table is at the lowest level that's fine you might find yourself at a more advanced level where you're ready to start actually adapting and changing your curriculum and really encouraging and working with other teachers and other professionals in your school to really make more school-wide adjustments or um reforms but um making sure that you at least are coming to the table and that you are at least challenging yourself to go one step above where you are. That's that's kind of the approach I've always brought to it. I think that there's a lot of people, again, who know a lot more about this that would say, we don't have time to waste on you going just one step further. Like we've got to get, we got to do a lot more work really quickly. But I don't know that um, inauthentic work where we force ourselves to go beyond our comfort zone before we're really ready for it is as effective as really high quality work Correct. where we're ready for we it. We need genuine wanting to want to be better. Yeah. That's yeah. That, that, you know, I think that that is incredibly important when you said that, that it's got to be genuine. It's got to be intentional, but it's got to be genuine. And I think if we took an approach of one step at a time is not good enough with our students, as some of us have, that really limits their success. And so I think for us, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, well, Josh, I really, I really have enjoyed what we've talked about, and um, I hope you continue to um, to struggle to be as as best as you can with with these benchmarks you set for yourself in your classroom. And and um, you know, I'm excited about your uniqueness as a teacher and your awareness being brought to every group of kid that you teach, and and uh, then every group of uh, teacher that you work with. So. I'm excited that you're a teacher in this area, and I'm excited to uh, that I've got to sit down and talk to you for a little bit. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>